Hey guys, and welcome to Fika with Rice, a podcast about life hacks, inspirational life stories, routines, and keys to success. I'm your host, Frederick Van Huyen, and each week I meet some of the most incredible people in the world from self-made millionaires, best-selling authors, experts, and world-class athletes. My goal is to extract their wisdom, mindset, tools, so you can use them in your daily life, but above all, to inspire you. Let's get this Fika started. Welcome to episode 25 by Fika with Rise. This week we meet Jonathan Bowman Perks, a former British army officer and leadership coach to leading CEOs, chairmen and executives and host of the acclaimed Inspiring Leadership podcast. In this episode, Jonathan teaches us what makes a leader, the hard work that no one talks about of being a leader, how you can inspire your children or your colleagues to seek for more, the role of psychology in leadership and how you can get the best from your team. Key questions to ask. Are you looking to become a leader? Or are you looking for inspiration for your leadership? Then this is an awesome episode with many gold nuggets. Let's get this Fika started. This is Jonathan's story. Let's go. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to Fika with Rice. I am so excited to have you here on the show. You have a very interesting background and bring a leadership expertise that I'm sure our audience will learn a lot from. And I wanted to, to start this episode with some rapid fire questions. This is the second time we're doing it. The first time we did it with, with Paul Getter, it was extremely popular. So it goes like this. I'll, I'll make a statement and then you'll finish the sentence. Does that make sense? Okay, let's have some fun. Okay, so let's start then. If I was 20 years old, I would... I'd learn a lot more. I'd listen and I'd not speak so much. That's a very good one. It's a very wise one because we have two ears, right? And one mouth. Use them in that proportion. Yeah. Yes. Okay. The biggest mistake I made when I was in university was? I think I partied too much and didn't learn enough about life. And I also think that I took myself too seriously and I would lighten up a bit. That's a good one. I also partied. I mean, not exceedingly a lot, Jonathan, but I said to myself, I don't want to be the 45-year-old guy in the party. I want to be the 20-year-old guy in the party. So now is the time to do it. But I saw it a lot like as, as networking opportunities. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of the time we're trying to impress people. And it's far easier to be yourself because everybody else is already taken, as Oscar Wilde would say. Be yourself. 100%. Okay. The biggest mistake young leaders make? Young leaders can think they know it all, but they haven't yet had any experience on which to make those decisions. So they're very quick to judge and they need to cut some people some slack and and understand what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes. And then when they get there, they go, oh, I didn't realize that. Like my four children, when they were 18, they couldn't believe how stupid I was. When they were 25, they went, I'm amazed how much my dad's grown up in the intervening years. Just have a bit of humility. I love that. How old are your children right now, Jonathan? 26 to 29 years old, four of them. What's uh, This is just a follow-up question on that. What's the, um, if it's one lesson that you could pass on, only one to your children, what would that be? And it couldn't be like a materialistic item. It needs to be a, a wisdom or, or a lesson or a virtue. Yeah, it, it is rule number six. And there's a story behind rule number six, but it's rule number six. Don't, don't take yourself too damn seriously. Okay. Well, which leads me to, to a parent question. The best advice I received from my parents when I was young was, 
Yeah, best advice to my parents. Well, my father was killed when I was two and a half. So I only had the wisdom from him uh, passed on, which was don't die with the music still in you, which is why I do these podcasts like you to pass on the wisdom that people have taught me. So don't die with the music still in you. That's a very deep one. The biggest misconception about being a leader is... Yeah, you think you have to throw your weight around and it's about talking a lot. Uh, That's a misconception. Actually, the best leaders I coach and work with are really curious in other people and what they can learn from them because everybody you meet has something to teach you if only you'd listen to them. 100%. 100%. I agree with that. Okay, how about the biggest misconception about the army is? They think it's all about um, just telling people what to do and shouting at people. Whereas actually, when I was with the Airborne, it's about a thing called Airborne Initiative, where everybody has to think for themselves. So when you land on the ground, I was the major, there was a sergeant there, there was a private soldier. If the private soldier says, take cover, you don't go, well, do you know I'm the major? And you're suddenly shot. So actually, It's about collective intelligence and anybody can make a a command, anybody can make a decision and people listen to it if they trust them. Okay. The last one is, I wish I knew when I was 25. Yeah. I wish I knew more about finances and wealth management and how compound interest works because I think I would have put away more than I did. I think I spent more than I should have done. That's a very, I mean, not random, but why compound interest? Yeah, well, compound interest, if you have that balance between someone who says, I'll give you a penny, and then yes. I'll dub- double it every, every day. And when someone else is given a larger sum of money, you often go for the larger sum of money. But the power of compound interest is phenomenal, but people don't realize just how much something grows. And if you properly invest something, and you're aware of, of just the best kind of ways to make money with money. I think that's very powerful. I believe compound interest is something that can be applicable to anything else in life too, Jonathan. What do you think of that in terms of training, in terms of skill skill stacking, anything that you want to become good at, so to speak? Like in your case, becoming a leadership coach. Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm at 60 now. I'm probably fitter than I was as a 20-year-old army officer. And that's because for the last five years, every week, I've done HIIT training three times a week. I've done yoga three times a week. And every morning I get up, apart from Saturday, which is my rest day, but I get up, I go through my habit stacking, my positive habit stacking, Atomic Habits, which you know well, by James Clear. I've done that whatever the weather, however tired I am, I do it. And as a result, I am much stronger, much fitter, much healthier than I've ever been. Uh, have you always been like you said that you 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 weren't that fit when you were twenty? But have you? What has this been something that you recently acquired? Like you said, the last five years is this something that you learned during your time in the military? I think the military gave me a sense of the discipline. If it's going to be, it's up to me. If I want to be fit, I've got to do something about it. I can't. They talk about done to me, to me, done by me, done through me. And the, the best leaders have this through me or that we're all one collective rather than done to me. This is, I'm a victim, it's not fair. And I realized that if I was going to keep fit in older age and not suffer from many of the 
critical illnesses. Some of them you can't you can't count on, but I can reduce a certain a lot of them by what I eat and intermittent fasting. We can talk a lot about health and well-being later on. By the hit training I do, the yoga I do, by the mindfulness I do, and the sleep that I get, and I also power nap. I had a power nap today. And then the community of friends and family that I interact with. Those are all things that will help me perform better every day and also help me live longer. So my health span matches my lifespan. I'm a health freak uh, and I, I love training as, as well, Jonathan. I used to be one of the, um, one of the best ping pong players in, in Sweden, actually. But that was a long time ago. Anyway. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. But I, I think that for people that, that do have these high standards of themselves, I mean, I think it's great. It's awesome. But Jonathan, for example, you have four children and you said being a leader, a lot of things should be happening through you. Have you been successful in passing on this discipline and these virtues to your children and people around you and as a leader, so to speak? I think that's one of the greatest joys for me is to see my children pick up some of the the healthier habits, but it's their choice. And uh, I'm not talking about like Coca-Cola might talk about sugary drinks, which are really bad for you. And they go, oh, it's, it's part of a balanced diet and it's all about choice and No, actually, what's happened is we've got a society with a strong addiction to sugar and highly processed uh, foods, and people can't get off that that addiction. So there's a whole story behind that. But what I am talking about is, as a leader, they're learning you. My children were learning me, not just what I said, but how I behaved. Now, I'd get things wrong frequently, and I was very quick to apologize and say, that's not right. And equally, I think particularly of my girls, all three of them, who are very emotionally intelligent. Now, part of that is a, like a language you learn, but part of that is having an interest in them and then they're interested in you. So I remember Bryony, my, what she's now coming up to 27, and uh, she got a triple first at Cambridge in all three years. She got a first, a very bright girl, but also she was reading me and she said, Daddy, are you okay? And then, I mean, she must have been six. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. She goes, no, no, are you really okay? Wow. Oh, wow. And I, well, no, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit upset. What are you upset about, Daddy? Well, I'm upset because of this happened. This person's done this. So what are you going to do about it, Daddy? You know, and what have you learned? I mean, these are questions from a six-year-old. Goodness me. And so continued to be interested in other people, doing very well in business, and, and also with her friends because she learned some of those skills and she also learned to adapt her mood. I sent her on when she was about um, 17, 18, sent her on a, a leadership coaching program and another course. So she learned the skills of, of leadership coaching and also neuro-linguistic programming, how you reprogram your mind and reframe the mindset you have. So you've got a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset, which you, I'm sure, are a big fan of. Yes, absolutely, Jonathan. I read a lot about that too, you know, obviously through people like Tony Robbins and so on. But for example, as a father and as a leader, well, your family, if I may say so, you said your daughter was 16 or 17 when you sent her on this camp. Was that something that you said you're going to this camp no matter what? Or was it, this is a proposal because this is going to be the benefits and she sort of trusted you and she said, okay, I'll go there because you inspired me or you told me or you suggested I should go there, daddy. 
it was the second, and it really followed in a, a line that my mother, as she brought myself and two brothers up on her own, single parent, because my father was killed flying. Yes. She, when I was the same age, said, look, we haven't got very much money. We really were very strapped for money. But she said, I've saved up some money. And if you want, I can send you away to John Ridgway School of Adventure in Ardmore in the northwest of Scotland. Or you could go on the the Winston Churchill, which is this big, tall sailing ship, and you'll learn a lot about leadership and you'll be with other people. I can't provide a, a sort of male figure that you can look up to, but you'll meet them on this program and they'll be your instructors. And I said, that sounds great. I'd love to go to John Ridgway School of Adventure in Ardmore. And it was life-changing, absolutely oh, wow. life-changing. It's extremely of, mature from your yeah, mother and really yeah, wise. Very, very wise of her. Now, she sought advice from other friends of her girlfriends who, who were married and said, what should I do with my sons? That kind of stuff. And this, knowing me, this is what they suggest I did. Now, in the case with Harriet and Brani, I could see they were fast learners. And my wife and I were always giving them experiences, which, you know, always a choice, never force them. Would you like to go and experience uh, learning about sailing in the Lake District in England? And you could go and be there a week and they'll teach you to sail. And they kind of, yes, that, they love it. And off they went. Or we'd learn to play squash or would you, you know, as you prepare for business, would you like to go and do some work experience with different firms, with friends I know? Yeah, that'd be great, Daddy. Bit scared about it, but it'd be really interesting. And they look back now and they say all those various experiences allowed them to decide what was right for them as well as what was not right for them. And so to have as many different experiences early on around that stage, 17, 18, 19, 20, is invaluable. Because you don't know what you don't know. And until you experience something, how can you know it's going to be right for you? 100%. And I love to inspire young people to really test out different experiences, both life experiences, but also professional ones. Because not only, like you're saying, you find out what you, you, you would like to do with your life, but at the same time, that's what life is all about. That's when life is actually happening and that's when your life become interesting. You have something to talk about with your, with your friends and so on. But I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, it, it seemed from listening to you rather easy for, for your, with your children, if I may say so. I say it's from a humble way. But how about people and young people that they say, no, I don't want to do that because I'm anxious, I'm introvert. How do you deal with, with personalities such as, such as those? I think a lot of the time we make some untrue limiting assumptions that we live as if they're true. Untrue, limiting assumption, lived as if true. So I remember one of my daughters said, Daddy, I can't do this. So she's making this assumption she can't do this. And I go, okay, that's fine. And if you could do it, how would you do it? And she went, without a blink, she went, I'd do it this way. Now, a minute ago, she just told me she couldn't do it. When I gave her a positive alternative assumption and said, if you could, how would you do it? The brain goes looking like a little mouse running around a maze for a positive alternative assumption. If I could do it, how would I do it? And I am always amazed by the power of the brain. And this is why in the coaching and the work I do with people of all ages and what I've learned from the podcast if you give space and time for someone else to do their own thinking for themselves, and you ask them simple questions like, what do you want to think about? And what are your thoughts? And off they go. And then what more do you think or feel or want to say? They very quickly find their own solutions, particularly when you give them the positive alternative. And in what's called an incisive question, which breaks through 
the things they don't think they can do. And also the other thing is to give them experiences, let them try it a bit. I'm no good at anything. That's, that's a generalization, okay? But yes. hang on, I, I saw you do this very well. Okay, well, I'm no good at most things, but I can do some things. So already you've begun to disintegrate this pessimistic view, which is they, they believe it's pervasive, it's personal, and it's persistent. And when you can break those up with examples of how it's not about them, and that's one of the lovely sayings from one of the other podcasters, it's not about you. When you worry about a lot of things, you go, oh, so it's about me. Not about you. Don't get wrapped up in yourself. It's not about you at all. So, Jonathan, let's take a real example then. So I have a niece. She's extremely talented in school. She is 10 now, but she's extremely shy. And I've encouraged her to do sports. I'm like, okay, I'll take you there. Let's try it out. And like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. How do you deal with a person like that? That is 10 years old, have the entire life in front of you. And it's okay, but I'll, I'll bring you there. And like, no, no, I don't want to do it. How do you use that method that you're suggesting? Well, I mean, in the first case, I really questioned myself whether is sports what she wants to do? So it might be the antithesis of everything that she wants to do. So first, you've got to give them what they want. And then you have to help them understand what they might need. But the presenting issue is the issue psychologically that they see that this is the problem. But if you start to give them a safe space, a psychologically safe space where they feel secure, particularly someone who, as you say with your niece, it sounds like she's more introverted than extroverted. Is that fair? That's correct. And also, I'm not one to make any judgment on anybody until I start to get to know them and know their life story. But once you know someone's life story, according to them, then you can start to help them. And it's often a lot of the challenges they've had along the way that will shape them more than anything. There's a very good book called Life is in the Transitions. And I've had many mistakes, many failures, many setbacks, disappointments. But it's in those moments that I've learned the most. So I always say in any situation, what have I learned? What action am I going to take? Learning, action, learning, action. And you can always ask her from anything that she's done that she's comfortable with, what have you learned from that? And what action are you going to take as a result of that? How can you make the most of that? What do you like doing? Where are you most comfortable? And in some cases, if you let a child just have crisps, they'll probably live off crisps all day long. You know, you're someone who knows about the microbiome and what's good. And you know that crisps are not good for them any more than sugary Coca-Colas or Fantas are or processed foods. But you sort of begin where they're at and then see how you can influence them in a positive way, safely and bit by bit to give them experiences of other things. And sometimes it doesn't work at that time. But later on, I remember coaching somebody and I thought I was an utter failure with this person. I was trying to help them make a transition. I didn't think it worked at all. And I met with them about three years later. And I said, look, I just want to say straight away that I'm really sorry. I, I feel like I let you down. I wasn't a particularly good coach. He said, no, the contrary. He said, I just wasn't ready to change then. But uh, six months after we'd finished working together, I made all these changes and this is what I'm doing now. And it was thanks to that, but I just wasn't ready to adopt it. So you've got to ask with your niece, when are they ready? And 10 is very early. Often we try and there's a lot of pressure, the sort of helicopter parents or uncles who are trying to help them because they want them to be like them. But be careful not to live your life vicariously through them. You know, what do they want to do? Or is this what you want to do through them? 
that would be just some thoughts I have. I didn't some very no, those are some really good thoughts. Those are some very really good thoughts. The, my reasoning behind putting her in sports was that, especially with the, with the virtual world that we have today, I feel like children need to build mental toughness. And one way that I see and the way I built it was through sports, through mm -hmm. defeats, through hard training, through consistent training, going to train when it's snowy, when it's raining, when you don't want to go, learning how to deal with anxiety, learning how to deal with disappointments and so on. And that helped me tremendously in life, through school and, every, and everything in life. So I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to inspire her to do, to, to do sports. And very commendable. And we just have to be incredibly careful that what we thought worked well for us is good for them. I loved and respected General Colin Powell. And in fact, my late mother and father-in-law lived next door to him in America in Fort Leavenworth. His book, and, and they went round and got to know him and were in his sitting room, that kind of stuff. Very impressive person. This was early in his career. But his book was written and it called, It Worked For Me. And that's really the point. Things work for you, Frederick, but they might not work for her. So you finding out what people's strengths are and playing to their strengths, there's always like three circles, what you love doing, what your unique talents are, and what the market wants or will pay for. This is as people and your audience are 18 to 25, you told me, you know, as they're thinking about the kind of jobs. Can you get to know what you love doing, kind of talents, things you have? what other people think you're talented at, and then think about the overlap of those two things, the bits which you like doing and you're talented at, that's a win, that the market will pay good money for. I mean, I was reading the World Economic Forum, the Future of Jobs report, 2022, just come out. Now, it's saying that in 2025, these are the top 10 skills. These are five of the top 10 skills. I can later on look up the others, but leadership and social influence is one of them. Resilience, stress tolerance, and flexibility is another. Analytical thinking and innovation, another. Creativity, originality, and initiative, another. And technology use, monitoring, and control is a fifth. So are the people who are listening preparing themselves for a world where a large number of jobs, millions upon millions of jobs will go, and there'll be new jobs and skills needed, which will be a combination of human interface, AI, and technology working together? That's my mm -hmm. question for you. It's a good question. We're trying to equip and inspire our students and our audience as much as we can and preparing them. I think the world is changing very, very rapidly. The biggest bottleneck that I see is that the big traditional educational institutions are not preparing their students enough for the, the future that we're entering. I think that's the biggest bottleneck. And then yeah. you have private enterprises like ourselves at Absolute Internship and many others and who are trying to do it from, from our angle, so to speak, in order to equip them. So. Yeah. Well, I, I think this has been a problem throughout the ages, even as I was growing up. I remember much of the stuff that I learned at school and at university. I go, this is of questionable value. And looking back now, what I'm doing now, how often would I have to use some of the stuff I had in physics or some of the calculus that I did and in integration? I mean, never. So, so why was, unless I was going to go into some detailed analytical engineering job, it was utterly irrelevant. But I would have loved to have learned about opening up a bank account and how to deal with a mortgage and, and some more practical things. So I think that your 
podcast is really good because, of course, you're giving practical tips and techniques to people, things they can take away, which is why I've written my little book, Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders, uh, which is tips, just little short sentences, tips from other leaders they found useful, which people can apply. They, They need practical tips and advice, not too much academic padding and uh, preparing people for the world they're about to go in, not the world that existed 20 years ago when some of the professors, and I've been a professor at a a business school teaching on the exec MBA, but um, it's got to prepare them for the world they're going into next. Jonathan, you were in the the British army for 20 years. You saw a lot of great leaders, I'm sure, a lot of average ones. And you've been in the army when communication, when we didn't have emails, when we didn't have text messages, but communication has always been ultra important, especially when you're in a high stress environment, like in the army. But that could also be in the corporate field. That could also be in a business school, could also be in a university. What would you say, how do you communicate effectively as a leader, especially in today's world with, where you have emails and texts where things really can get complicated and people can assume? Yeah. I wasn't quite that old that, that people were running in sandals from Marathon with a stick with a little note attached on the end of it, holding it out for the emperor to receive it. But it was a time when I remember huge boxes about this size, which now can be fitted into an iPhone size. And we had big, I was in charge of communications around Germany and we had huge repeaters on hills and things driven up in big lorries and stuff like that, which now are permanent masts. So That was the technology, but the actual process of getting messages to and from people is still the same from Sparta to today, which is that you've got to make sure that you, it's not the fact you have transmitted, send the message verbally on the phone as a text, it's have they received it? And often we go, well, I sent the message, I sent the email, it's your fault you didn't get it or you didn't understand it. And I think people forget it's a real skill to communicate clearly, succinctly, and specifically so the other end understands it. Otherwise, we have the problem which we described in communication when I was in the Royal Corps of Signals in the British Army, which we call it other enditis. There's a problem at your end. No, the problem's at your end. No, it's at your end. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, you often have to transmit, send the message, say the message, the branding, whatever it is many more times than just once to make sure it gets through. And then you've got to check that people understand it. There's that famous story about the First World War, where people pass down the trench, send reinforcements, we're going to advance. And by the time it had been passed on from ear to ear, the final private soldier said to his captain, sir, send three and fourpence, we're going to advance. And of course, things can get very corrupted. And People abuse situations for their own ends. You only need to look at what's going on with people like Trump and his communication message and whether he feels he lost the election, which he didn't. But he then he then will go on about that and communicate and find mediums that will get his message across. And so now we've got a a breakdown in trust in communications because people don't believe one side or the other. It's a big area. But as individuals, if you're 18 to 25, Learn the skills of good writing, whether you're texting it or written written letter, good verbal communications, and being able to read other people in a room or on a on a video like we're doing now, 
So you can look at the cues and read the body language and the eye signals, mm-hmm. what's different from normal. So a lot of things that young people do well is that they know how to write polite emails. They know how to write polite text messages, but sometimes the point doesn't get across. And then you receive an email, you know, okay, what's the action here? What do I need to do? Hence, that's why I was asking the question, really, how do you really effectively get get the point across as a leader? There's levels of effectiveness in communications. You know this, and I'm sure many of the people listening know this. The most effective is face-to-face. You can see the whole body language. You can check with somebody. You can tell how authentic they're being about it, whether they're really serious about it, intonation, tone, whether they repeat certain things. By the time you've got to then video, that's slightly less effective. And then when you get on to text and emails, people shorten it, use emojis, anything they want, and think that the other person might understand what they mean, often misunderstood very badly. So I find it very useful when you've got two people talking with each other and there's a a lack of understanding. I get them to play the game of, can you summarize what she said to her satisfaction? So in 90 seconds, just can you summarize what she said? She gives a thumbs up if she feels she's been heard, hasn't been fully heard and definitely hasn't been heard. And the other person has to improve it until she gives a thumbs up. And then they can go on with their point of view. And then they, they reverse the tables. And the other person has to, to play back what they understand that person's point of view. And then you get them to get to a point of an agreed decision, action, next step, who's going to be accountable and what's the delivery deadline. It's called Dan's ad, D-A-N-S-A-D-D. You don't just have a meeting for the sake of it and an update. You need them to make decisions in every single job. The main thing we make is decisions, decidere, which means to slice off and stop something, decide to do something else. And decision-making is the most important skill for your young leaders who are listening today. That's a separate topic that is extremely, extremely exciting, decision-making, because a lot of people have problems making decisions. I mean, including myself. I find, I mean, it's really strange, Jonathan, but so for example, I work at Absolute Internship I take decisions every day. I feel very comfortable in doing it. I do it rather fast, sometimes with lack of information. But to go out and buy a pair of shoes, I can get like big anxiety and I I, I will not be able to make a decision because there's too many options. How do effective leaders take decisions fast and what separates those that take decisions fast versus those that have like this obstacle, like this problem with taking decisions? Sure, this happens to a lot of young people, especially a lot of fresh graduates who are just entering the, the workforce. Yeah, it is a common problem for all of us. One of the things in society today more than ever before is we're not going to Little where there is one red wine bottle. You know, you're going to Tesco where you've got a choice of 200. And so you get exactly. moithered by the modern environment. What's the benefit of this or that? And if you're someone who loves to analyze things and look at data and have a spreadsheet and things like this, you can get your knickers in quite a twist because you, you, you're just overwhelmed. And this is a problem that in military communications and indeed in combat fighting, we got to the point where you have to go with 80% of the information. If you wait for 100%, it'll be too late. The enemies moved on the far side of the hill. They were over there. You sent a scout up to the top of the hill. They observe what was going on. They came back in the old days and told you what it was, or they radioed back. And you then have to make a decision. But you don't know exactly where they are. And I think part of our problem is we're looking for 
complete awareness of all the factors, all the information, and then we can make the perfect decision. Get over it. There's never a perfect decision. You're going to have to make the least worst decision. This is what Churchill talked about democracy. It's not good. It's the least worst of all the systems they have, but the others are are even worse. So making a decision with incomplete information, but then you have a review point. And there's a very good book. I I had the um, Captain David Marquet, who commanded a a USS Navy submarine. It was the worst in the Navy. And then he turned it around to become the best in the Navy. It's called Turn the Ship Around. And his second book is Leadership as Language. And in that, he talks about some stage you can be a decision evaluator. You get decisions made as low a level as possible. If other people can make the decision, get them to make the decision. But then you have a review point where you check, is this still right? Has the situation changed? People think it's a bad thing to change their mind when the situation changes. Not at all. Churchill was criticized it in the House of Parliament years ago when he was alive. And he said, when the situation changes, I change my opinion. What do you do? Like, how stupid is that? To, the situation's changed, but you still keep going, I don't care. The situation's changed. Yeah. You might go, I'm just going to go out and meet loads of people, but there's a pandemic on and yeah. you might catch COVID. So you're just going to carry on doing that? Yeah, I thought I would. Well, okay, see the consequences and cope with that. It's about removing the ego, I understand, especially in the case of Churchill. Really be bold and daring to, to actually change your mind. Yeah, I, I think be prepared to admit that you're wrong. The decision you made was made with the best information you had at that time, but the situation has changed. And now you're reviewing it. You're going to change your opinion. And I think making no decision is making a decision. It's just the fact you're doing nothing. So you need to decide what you're going to do and with the best information you can have at the time. But there comes a tipping point where you're getting paralysis by analysis and you just need to make a decision, move with it, review it. Is it still relevant? Keep going, review it. Is it still relevant? And so on. Yeah. Another thing that uh, that I was thinking about before this, this chat with you, Jonathan, was imposter syndrome, which mm-hmm. I'm sure is very common among younger leaders. I'm sure with senior ones as well and more experienced ones. But for example, myself, I consider myself a, a quite self-confident person. And I give a lot of gratitude towards my parents for really raising my this way and instilling this in me. But sometimes myself, you know, leading a team, I also have questions like, okay, have I really done enough for my team? Am I really giving the support, care and empathy that, for example, this person needs? What's your take on it? Like, does one need to have a strategy around imposter syndrome or how do you deal with it? I think in some bizarre way, imposter syndrome is quite healthy. Because when you are Trump-like and you believe you're completely right when all the factors are telling you you're wrong, that's what I call the dark triad of narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism, yes. uh, which is the, the ending of many companies and many successful young leaders who, who are too arrogant to admit they're wrong. So the first thing you got to ask yourself, what am I wrong? What if I'm wrong? And if I am wrong, what would I then do? And then what would I do? So having scenario planning of what would happen, Eisenhower, for example, who became president and was the general in charge of the D-Day landings, he wrote two letters the night before the 6th of June invasion of of France. In one letter, he wrote, I apologize for all that went wrong. It was utterly my responsibility. And the failure of of the invasion was my fault. And in the other one, he wrote, I'm really pleased 
that the invasion has gone really well. And I want to thank Generals Marshall and Montgomery and, and Bradley for their superb leadership. That's fine leadership. But he was preparing for what if things go wrong? Because the only thing you can control, and I do recommend people read The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, which is all about Stoic philosophy. If you have come across it, I see you nodding. It's uh, on my nightstand for many yeah. years. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I read one one page every day and yeah. uh, it's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I do the, the uh, similar thing. In the morning, as I'm dyslexic, I listen to a five minutes worth, might be a couple of days worth, doesn't really matter, of The Daily Stoic. As the very first thing, I'm not listening to the news. I'm not depressing myself. This is what's going wrong in the world. I'm listening to some some wisdom. And I recommend, if only I knew that when I was 18 or 20, I think I would have been a much wiser man because I can only control the controllables. And that's my thoughts and my actions. I can't control what you do. I can't control whether the technology on this call fails. Yes. Uh, I can set things up. I think being prepared for the fact that we all do doubt ourselves. In the darkest part of the night, we worry about, am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? And in the example you gave me, Frederick, I think it's a really good one. Ask the people, you know, what are the supports you need from me? Or when we were doing selection of young officers, I was an instructor at the Royal Military Academy Santos, which is probably, according to many opinions from experts, one of the best leadership development centers in the world. And I was very honored to go through there for two years being trained and then to go back later on when I was 25 and be an instructor. I think I was 28, actually, to be fair, 28. I learned a huge amount from the instructors I had and fellow instructors. But a lot of the time, I didn't always know the answer. And I'd sometimes ask this, okay, gathering, we've got a problem here. I, haven't, I don't know what to do. I haven't got the answer, but I want to hear some views from all of you, and then I'll make a decision based on your best thinking. So what do you think? Everybody has a chance to speak. And I go, okay, having heard all your views, my freshest thing is this. So you do this, you do this, you do this, I'll do this. Off we go, follow me. And that's fine leadership. It's no mistake. In fact, it's a great strength to admit you don't know, apologize when you're wrong, and work out what to do to resolve it. So I love that advice. And especially the one of asking questions, which I, I find myself fairly good at in asking the other party how to feel about it especially another colleague, when I feel like there's a challenge, and I'm sure a lot of people in the audience have that too, is when the other person feels that, okay, there's a hierarchy in between us, or I'm shy, I'm not really going to say how I feel. I'm just going to say everything is fine, or I don't dare to say it. I'm not saying that I'm leading by like scaring people or I'm leading by, by fear, but It might happen. I mean, it's normal, especially when you're dealing with younger colleagues who are 22, 23, who doesn't have that much experience. So in those situations, it's a, it's a good one. Often one of the great questions, questions are often brilliant in any situation. If you were in charge, what would you do? You could ask one of them. Two lovely little mnemonics, WWW and EBI. In the idea I've suggested to you, what works well about it and what would make it even better if we did it? So you don't say what the problems are with it, but what's working in it and what will make it even better. And so then you can iterate and constantly improve it to make it a better solution. But then ultimately, check, are you committed to it? Yes, not so sure, and you're down. What would it take to make it a thumbs up to make you fully committed? Well, if we did this, plus we did that. So don't assume that silence means that everybody agrees with you. 
And you can do the commitment, the thumbs up sideways. I love that, down. actually. Don't it's that. It's I brilliant. love that. And because... I don't know where I got it from. I can't claim the credit, but it's a brilliant way of checking on a, on a, a video link with 20 people or whatever. Are you committed to this action? Yes, fully committed. Not quite there. Or are you against it? And the question is, what would it take to make it a thumbs up? And they then give you the solution exactly. to what would make it even better. Exactly. No, I love that a lot. I love that, really. It seems that the key lies in the questions, the type of questions you ask, and then don't assume that silence is agreement. And it's a lovely old Chinese saying, the quality of the answer depends on the quality of the question. And we need to make each question relevant for a 14-year-old reader of a of a basic magazine, all right? Yes, the language I love has that. got to be as simple as possible. If a 14-year-old couldn't understand it, it's far I too complicated. It. And so check with people beforehand the quality of the question. And it needs to be like a what question or a how question. Asking people why or a yes or no, closed questions, not good. I like that. And I love the, the 14-year-old uh, connection because I use that myself when I don't understand something. I'm like, okay, Jonathan, I don't understand this Bitcoin thing or whatever. Explain to me like I'm 12 years old what it is. And yeah. that, and if that person can't digest it and like really break it down to a 12-year-old level of language, then that person doesn't understand it. It's very well put. And we're in danger with things like Bitcoin and uh, N- uh, non-fungible tokens and things like that, NFTs, <laughs> Please, yes. of selling things that people don't understand. And we don't seem to have learned from the mortgage-backed security scandal in 2008, when people were bundling up packages of dodgy yes. uh, financial arrangements with good stuff and selling it. And people didn't understand what was there. It's almost like looking at an old garden shed and it's been painted 25 coats. You don't know what the first coat color was. All you can see is the latest one. So people are going, oh, I'm going to invest in this. This is a really good idea. And they lost their money big time and the, the, the whole s- structure crashed. It's lovely to have new technology. I'm very supportive. I'm an early adopter of most things, but I will not sell and represent things I don't understand myself because I'm not being authentic. And my credibility is connected to the, I'm a trusted leadership advisor. That's my job. And if they trust me and I break that trust by selling something I don't understand and it all goes wrong, my reputation is ruined. I steer widely clear of things that are kiss-me-quick schemes where people can get massively rich but also lose it all overnight because they don't understand how the system works. And often they're Ponzi schemes or someone's making a lot of money, but it's not likely to be you. Yes. Leadership is is a very, I mean, it's a very extensive topic. There's so many books about it. You mentioned some, and I'm I'm a big reader, so I'm definitely going to look them up afterwards. And I'm a big fan of older books with the exception of two leadership books, which I read, I think it was during 2020. So the number one is The Ride of Lifetime, uh, The Ride of a Lifetime with Bob Iger. And then Mm -hmm. the number two is What It Takes uh, with Steven Schwartzman. But my personal opinion is that you learn. I mean, that's my personal opinion. You're the expert though in this topic, Jonathan. My personal opinion is that you learn the best for leadership by doing in order to become a great leader. But that takes a lot of time. And to become an, like a great leader, that takes many, many years. I know the, uh, the business partner of uh, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, he once said that the fastest way to get ahead in life is to learn from other people's mistakes, which leads me to the question that I have. 
what are the, the three most common mistakes that leaders make that are not often spoken about? Well, I just want to pick up before I go to answer that question on the earlier one. I, I do think you make a very good point that all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders. So That's a good point, yes. There's no doubt about it that the advent of Audible and audiobooks, for me as a dyslexic, was life-changing, but it only came later in my life. And if I'd had that when I was 16, I am certain I would have been a far better leader than the leader I was for my 20 years in the military, when I was in PricewaterhouseCoopers, IBM, managing director, running my own business, director of my own business, and, and advising CEOs and boards around the world. I would have learned much earlier. In the last two years, I probably listened to over 300 audiobooks on leadership and health and well-being. That's a lot, John. I just wow. soak them up. I'm out on a walk with a dog. I'm any different activity, uh, heading up to bed. I'll just listen to a bit or whatever it might be. It's my occasion to soak up Churchill, Marlborough, Malcolm X, life histories about various people, whatever it might be. Books on Spoon Fed is an excellent book by Tim Spector about the right kind of foods these days to eat. It's a definite one for you. And then this book, 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. But then also how to win friends and influence people. I mean, a classic of all classics. Yeah, that's one of my, the best, I think yeah. it was six or seven pounds, six, seven euros when I bought it. Yeah. Amazing it's just, book. It's a great book. And if people want some other books to look at, go to my website, jonathanperks.com. And there I've got 30 of the best books I've read recently. And I'm reading more all the time, audiobooks. There's some really good ones out there. Just a short review, but I've got them in order. And, and also one of my favorites is, General the Lord Dannett, who was on episode 200 of my podcast, his book, Leading from the Front. It's a great story about his life, very inspiring leader. And he was a role model and a mentor to me, which is my other tip to all those who are listening, is learn from others, mentors, find some good mentors. You may have to pay for them. It's not always free, but if you can get a free one, that's fine. But value people's wisdom and experience. People pay a lot of money for my wisdom and experience, but it's not just mine. It's what I've learned from the 210 podcasts I've done, of the books I've written, the research I've done, and of the many mistakes I've made. So back to your original question, the three mistakes that it was it the three mistakes that I see leaders making the most. Is that right? Yes, that are not often spoken about. So I mean, the most common ones are, I mean, in my opinion, is like, okay, leaders. They should listen. Leaders should, like you were saying in the beginning, they should speak less. They should be the one that are quiet in the room, soak everything in, and then then speak. Leaders should be empath empathetic. But what are the common mistakes that are not often spoken about that leaders do? Yeah, okay. I'd say three things. Moral integrity, or MQ, as I talk about in my book, is really important. What you'll stand for and what you won't fall for. And That's interesting. Okay. Too often, leaders fail in their moral integrity. They know that someone's doing something that's wrong. You look at British Parliament mm -hmm, and, yes. you know, the Boris and uh, his different parties. A lot of people knew that was wrong, but nobody stood up and said, this must not happen. Or if they did, they decided just to keep quiet about it. They didn't yeah. blow the whistle on it at the time and the leaders in charge went with it. So that's the first one. Okay. They, that certain leaders lack moral courage and moral integrity. There's that excellent book by Margaret Heffernan, Willful Blindness, 
read it. It's a it's a wake up call, because if you're not saying no to things that are wrong, you are being willfully blind and you are condoning it. Even staying silent, you're condoning it because you're not standing up to it. Look what happened in Germany with Hitler. A lot of people knew it was wrong, but they didn't stand up to it until it gathered such momentum that the Gestapo killed anybody who said it was wrong. So that's the first one. The second one is PQ. That's purpose and meaning. And too many leaders don't have a clear mission in life, a purpose, a reason. The reason why I'm on this call with you is because my father died saving the lives of two other people. When I was an instructor at Sanders, I didn't do particularly well. I got an average report and I wanted to be a better leader. So I've met the people who served with my father and they said, you have a calling. You can either be a victim, poor me, my dad was killed and I have no father, or you can make your father your inspiration. And you can look for inspiring leaders, learn from them and pay it forward to others, which is what I'm doing now for free on this call with you, helping others so that they can have a better start in life and get the best tips and techniques. They don't have to make the same mistakes. So that's the second one, is a clear sense of burning why you're doing what you're doing. And the third one is that they forget that they need to leave a legacy. They need to leave things better than they found them. It's about stewardship. I don't own my four children. I'm only looking after them as they pass through on their way. But can I leave them better than they would have been without my input, without my help, my love, my support, my financial backing? No, they couldn't have done. But I, there might have been someone who'd been a better father than me. I'm sure there, there could be many. And uh, talk to my children, they say, well, he could have been a bit better at this. He, he, he could have done better. I'm sure there's always, you know, I'm always learning and I'm always open to being wrong and getting things better. But I think moral quotient, purpose quotient, and legacy quotient are three things where some leaders fall very short. I love the last one, Jonathan. And I see myself learning a lot from, for example, the Swedish national team coach in, in football, who's not very famous outside of Sweden, but uh, Sweden bet Italy and went to the World Cup in four years ago, which was a big, big upset in, in the world of, of sports. And uh, this was in the last game, the last match was in Milan in San Siro. And you could see the coach, Jan, Jan Andersson, he was cleaning the dressing room after the celebration. And I think that's a great example of what you're saying, stewardship, because he's leading by example. He wants to leave things like that's not the way it should be. Like, okay, we we had our party here and we've been throwing things around, but we need to leave it as we found it, so to speak, or even better. So yeah, yeah. and I relate that, you know, officers eat last. And when I think of my time in the 20 years in the military, the motto of the military academy was serve to lead. You're, You're serving others. And I remember doing airborne training. And when we'd finished the, a really long march, about 10 miles with 60 pounds of kit, and we were hanging out, everyone went into the gym with their dirty boots and stuff. And they stood there in the gym. It was pouring rain outside. The sergeant instructor fell them out and then said to me as the captain, so there's lots of more junior ranks, right, sir, in a very silly way, you're going to be sweeping the gym. And so for the next half hour, I swept the gym on my own as the officer, because they always expected the officers to do as much as the men and more and be as fit as them and lead by example. And if shitty jobs had to be done, they could do it themselves. So I've never forgotten that. Oh, wow. That's a valuable lesson. It's a very, very valuable lesson. 
I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, in the, in the beginning of the call about your father. What happened, if I may ask? You said he passed away when you were two and a half, saving the lives of two others, if I may ask. Yeah, so my father was a fast jet naval pilot with the Fleet Air Arm. He was the commanding officer of 801 Squadron on board HMS Victorious. And they've been given brand new Buccaneer aircraft, and he was test flying them, each of the aircraft, to make sure they were safe for his young pilots. They were much younger than him and not as experienced. He was a, an award-winning pilot, really good at what he did. And on one that he was flying the sixth aircraft, the, a fault developed, and the turbine was faulty, and it had a, a break in it. It broke off, and it went through the side of the aircraft, causing a huge fire, cutting through the the fuel lines. And my father said, we've got a fire on the aircraft. I'm bringing it in. We need to find out what this is so we can work out what the problem is with the other ones. And that was his last words. And he then ejected his navigator, Bill White, who lived and who I met. And he said, you know, your father died saving my life. But what was more interesting is one of the other pilots who was there, he said, your father bought my ticket. I said, what do you mean? He said, your father was test flying my airplane. I should be dead and he should be having lunch with you, his son. And he saved the lives of two of us that day. So that was why I do the work I do. And he was a great role model to me. And indeed, my mother was too, who did a lot of charitable work around Halifax, even though she had so little money herself. And what was so lovely when she was in her last years and dying in a nursing home with a, a severe stroke, many of the people she'd helped, some of the poor of Halifax as well, went to visit her in the nursing home when she used to go and visit them when they were ill. That's what I call that's pay, impact. Pay, pay it forward, yeah. And that's a forward. huge impact, yes. Like, am I right to say that your father is the inspiration that you joined the army then? Yes. I mean, I was not particularly good at sea, bobbing around. I got a bit seasick. So I thought I wanted to definitely be an officer like my father. And so that was, that was why I uh, went to, to go to Santa's. I read lots of magazines as a young boy about Captain Commander and things like that. <laughs> And the, the reality is a bit more scary and a bit tougher than, than you think in the magazines. Jonathan, I'm, we're going to round up, but it was a question that I wanted to ask you that earlier on, but I didn't have the chance. A lot of people deal with insecurities, especially when, when they join, when they become a professional, they're 23, 24, or 26 for that matter. Many of them have been insecure for many years, different reasons. How do you inspire or how do you lift up? How do you unblock an insecure colleague as a leader? It's a very big topic. I wouldn't want to brush it off as a simple, with a simple answer. But I think finding out what someone's strengths are and their talents and playing to those first, what they can do, and then actually having a culture where it's safe enough to talk about the things that you feel vulnerable about and you're not so sure about. When I look back on advice to young people, General the Lord Dannett, who was episode 200, which has not yet come out, he said, I wished when I was that age, I'd talked about difficult situations and I'd asked advice from mentors. And he said, I wish I had invested more in my own self-development. So I think self-development, reading, mentors, coaching, you can watch all my podcasts for free. There's lots of free advice there and advice on the books to listen to and read. They will help you, give you that experience, which you need to cram in as much as you can from other people's mistakes. So you don't have to make the same mistake yourself. So you would say as a leader then, play the strength, 
you were saying? And number two, inspire them to work on themselves, read, listen, just get as much inspiration and knowledge as they can from other areas, so to speak. Yeah. And then be prepared that when you've made a mistake to admit you've made a mistake and ask for help. There's that famous story by uh, John Watson of IBM when he became the CEO in a culture where failure was not an option. And someone came in and said, I've made a mistake. He said, well, how long have you known this is a mistake? Well, six months, he said. Why didn't you tell the previous CEO? Well, we couldn't tell him because he only wanted good news. He said, okay, so how much is it going to cost? He said, well, probably about $530,000, which in those days was a lot of money. And he said, okay. He said, I I suppose you're going to fire me. He said, why am I going to fire you? I've just invested $530,000 in your development. Come back tomorrow with your team and tell me what you're going to do to learn from it and take action on it. So learning and action, that's the other thing I would leave people with. Always think about what have I learned? What am I going to do? This is a teachable moment. It's not a failure. It's a teachable moment. It's teaching me something to do so I can be better for next time. Fantastic advice. Jonathan, it's been fantastic. I I learned a lot during this hour together. I'm sure our audience uh, learned a lot as well. Where can people find you online to learn more about you? I know you mentioned your website, if you want to repeat that and and the book or anything else. Yeah, uh, thank you for that. So um, you can find me, uh, my website, jonathanperks.com. And I've got two books. Uh, You'll find them on Amazon, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. Uh, We did a version, my wife wrote a book inspiring women leaders for those women there, which is good. It's it's got other advice. And then we did a a top tips edition for inspiring women leaders. So there's a good collection of advice there. But um, more than anything, go out, have a go. If you make a mistake, learn from it and take some action on it would be my advice. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you and take care. Been an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fika with Rice. I hope you enjoyed the show. Who do you want to have on our show? Let us know by sending me an email at frederick at absoluteinternship.com. And before you go, if you like this conversation, don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube or Spotify to get to listen to more inspirational stories and life hacks. We really appreciate it. See you next time and much gratitude for listening.